Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Book of the Year podcast. I'm Andrew and ordinarily you will find me here in my garden shed recording the Cosmic Shed podcast where we explore the way that science and storytelling collide through science fiction. But don't worry, this is the Physics World podcast. And joining me to discuss some of our favourite books from the Book of the Year shortlist and to announce the winner are Margaret Harris and Tushna Commissariat of Physics World. Margaret, there's a shortlist of 10 books, but how many did you whittle that down from? Well, there's been a total of 57 books reviewed in Physics World. Tushna reviewed some of them. I I reviewed some of them. Uh, The bulk of them were reviewed by our external experts. So these are physicists, sometimes science writers, occasionally science historians, uh, experts in their field who we've asked to give their opinions. And their opinions have sort of fed in indirectly into the choices that we're making today. And what criteria do you use to select the shortlist? The books need to be well-written, of course, novel, addressing a new topic that's not been covered much in popular science literature before, or taking a topic that has been covered and looking at it in a different, revealing and refreshing way. And the final criteria is it needs to be scientifically interesting to physicists. You know, a book might be really cool about mathematics, but unless it's really interesting to physicists, it's not going to make our list. Fair enough. And the first book I'd like us to talk about is The Pope of Physics, Enrico Fermi and the Birth of the Atomic Age by Gino Segre and Bettina Herlin. Now, this is a biography about one of the most respected physicists of the 20th century. Um, What it gives us is a picture of a research group full of life at one of the most exciting times in physics discovery. But that title, Why the Pope of Physics? Fermi's nickname was the Pope because he was seen to be almost infallible in terms of his intuition about physical theories. You know, Fermi said something, it was so, almost. And one of his uh, close colleagues was the Cardinal Vicario, Cardinal Vicar, who was the right-hand man, obviously. <laughs> Emilio Segre, who's actually the uncle of one of the authors. Uh, Emilio Segre was a very famous physicist in his own right and won the Nobel Prize a few years after Fermi did. He apparently had a judgmental disposition. So he, his nickname was Basilico, the Basilisk, legendary reptile ca- capable of causing death with a single glance. <laughs> so you get a, a sort of, in the book, you get a sort of a good impression of what it was actually like to be a researcher in, in this freewheeling, exciting atmosphere where lots of discoveries were going on. One interesting thing is that Fermi was one of the greatest Italian physicists, if not the greatest Italian physicist since Galileo. He was also, in the wider physics community, known for being perhaps the last physicist to be both an excellent experimentalist and an excellent theorist. So really mixing those two things, you know, quite a lot of people before and basically everybody after has specialized in, in one of those two branches. But he was ambidextrous as a physicist. He was actually a very private person. He was very gregarious, you know, you saw with the nickname, but he was, he was very private. He kept his own personal feelings very bottled up. It's, it's a bit of an enigma at the center of the, of the book because you feel like you know the atmosphere around Fermi better than you know the man himself. And that's even though the authors obviously had very good access to the family archives and the family papers, and particularly to the stories told by Fermi's wife, Laura, who had some training in physics and and published a really well-received book called Adams and the Family, which looked at a sort of a sideways look at their life. So there was that that book that was published in English back in the um, early 1950s. But this is, to my knowledge, the first English-language full biography of Fermi himself. With Fermi, it's easy to say, oh, his main contributions were nuclear, sort of the bomb. And undoubtedly, yes, that's true. But he also 
really laid the foundation for quantum mechanics, two very crucial areas mm. of physics um, set out by Fermi. Obviously in the Cosmic Shed we talk about science fiction quite a lot. One of the things that comes up in science fiction quite a lot is the Fermi paradox. This is the same guy and the Fermi paradox is uh, that it's described in the book that at some point he and his associates were chatting idly about life in the universe and Fermi's question was where is everybody? If there are so many planets that can support life so many um, other galaxies, other, other solar systems. Why, why are we not hearing from them literally all the time? Mm. Not just in science fiction, but in, yeah. in reality. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's a question that I think has never really been, been answered, but mm. is, is really one of the, the main puzzlers. Well, Life in the Universe is the subject of our second book that we're going to discuss today, Goldilocks and the Water Bears by Louisa Preston. It's a book about astrobiology, and the possible location and nature of life on other planets. Now, I have to admit, I love the title of this book, and I know that, Tushna, you did too. Goldilocks and the Water Bears. Now, if if, if you're in the business of at all reading about... Um exoplanets, these are planets outside of our solar system. A common phrase used by astrobiologists is the Goldilocks zone, and that is where in the solar system, how far or close to the star, a planet has to exist for it to be not too hot and not too cold. And this area is literally called the Goldilocks zone, that's what they call it. I mean, officially I guess you could call it the zone of habitability. Physicists and astronomers are quite whimsical folk, we've found. They (laughs) love coming up with these little names and little jokes. And then they write them into the literature. So, you know, the Goldilocks zone is precisely that. And now the water bears. Now, water bears are my favourite things in this universe. (laughs) And they're these strange, tiny creatures. They're called tardigrades. Teeny, tiny, microscopic things that look like little bears (laughs) with, like, suckers for faces. I mean, they could be quite terrifying if they were big. But they're really tiny. Um, They're quite cute. And and, and these are extremophiles. So these are creatures that can survive in extreme conditions where most of the current life that we know of uh, on our planet would not be able to survive. And extremophiles are of real interest to astrobiologists because they show us right here on Earth that all of the things that we think we need for life, i.e. for it to be not too hot, not too cold, um, not too salty, you know, um, pH and salinity is a big factor for life. Um, all of these things actually go straight out of the window with these extremophiles. And so they're extreme loving creatures, the creatures that thrive in extreme conditions. And, you know, they flourish in volcanic areas, you know. You, you think, my gosh, nothing would survive there. But no, they do. And they oh. they have, um, you know, as, as, as Preston explains in the book, they, they literally have very basic changes to their systems that we don't have so a simple example of that is proteins if it gets too hot a protein gets denatured it just you know doesn't it it doesn't hold itself anymore and this is very true of dna and rna um so if your dna doesn't hold its shape anymore you're kind of kind of stuck um but these extremophiles their base dna and their their protein structure it's different from ours it does survive so even like 120 degrees centigrade and you know you think they've been into space as well yeah and that's the amazing part the water bears i think they became so popular because they've been found 
kind of in the very upper atmosphere. Um, some of them might have hitched a ride on <laughs> quite a few of our spacecraft. <laughs> Which is interesting because, you know, if we found if we found water yes. bears on Mars, we actually wouldn't know whether we'd brought them there. Exactly. It might be a bit of panic. There. Yes, like, yeah. oh no. <laughs> we have really a real controversy there. Mars or... They can survive for over, I think, seven years without any form of sustenance. Really? Um, yeah, so they seem to be nearly indestructible. And I think very recently they worked out their genome and it's some of the most alien in the sense the most different genome of of any species found on earth so so that's where the name comes from i have these perfect parameters for life in the goldilocks zone and they're really necessary but then something like a water bear can completely you know change these parameters and the more we find out about life here on earth the more we can tell and judge about life elsewhere in the universe this book is about possibly the subject that i found most interesting in the universe (laughs) but my fear about it is that we're finding out so much about these things all the time is this book going to come out of date quite quickly i don't think so actually i think what this book does it, it, it it's an excellent scene setter and what preston she's not just an author she's an astrobiologist and a planetary geologist herself she's based at university of london what her research is is that she goes to these these different weird places on earth where it's very hot or very cold very salty and things like that and looks for the kind of life that's surviving and thriving there what she's done in this book is not just tell us about this is what we know so far she covers many different thing she covers the sort of biological part of um, different forms of life um there's quite a few chapters probably from her planetary geologist background the different kind of formations of planets and stars it turns out that there's a galaxy-wide goldilocks zone where planets are sort of more likely to form stable planets etc so you know she really covers all her bases from the very big to the very small so for someone looking to really good solid introduction to what we know and what we don't know about life across the universe this is a good book okay listen louisa if you're listening come to the cosmic shed let's have an interview in the shed santa if you're listening i want this book for christmas i spend quite a lot of time sitting in this shed thinking about all these exoplanets it's quite a hard thing to visualize but you know i try the next book is quite a hard book to talk about it's really not radio friendly is it it's not really audio friendly (laughs) really not it's like oh look at this pretty thing oh wait you can't but it is cosmos the infographic book of space by Stuart lowe and chris north now, I love this book when I, when I read it uh, earlier this year to, to review it in Physics World. Um, I actually first found out about the book because it was a copy was sent to our, our studio, our graphics studio at IOP Publishing, the Physics World's parent organization. And the graphics people down there were going, oh, this is so amazing. You know, <laughs> so this, is, this is, has the professional endorsement of, of people who actually know a lot about, um, about infographics as well as people who, who know a lot about science. Toshna, you've just been flicking through and you found one... Wow, what does that tell us? I wish our listeners could look at what I'm looking at, but in physics and in astronomy today, big data is is the name of the game, as it were. So how do you show this big data? How do you show it to people who are not scientists, who might not really understand? And that's exactly what the book Cosmos does. It takes many different data sets and presents it to you in a way in which a quick glance at the page already tells you a story. Um, So the one I'm looking at is about exoplanet discoveries, and basically what they've done 
is is divvy up the different exoplanets by how we found them, the method by which they're found. And you, you look at the, on the bottom axis is time, the different years. On top of each date, each year, is a stack of circles representing the exoplanets that were discovered in that year. And the circles are, are have different colors based on the, the type of method used to detect that particular exoplanet. So what you see is the first exoplanet known was found back in 1989, and it was a bit on its own for for several years. There weren't there was there were a few detected in 1992, and then what you see as you move toward the present day is this sort of flood of exoplanets coming in. We're finding actually this isn't this isn't unusual to have planets around another star. It's actually pretty typical. And in particular, year, the year 2014, there were a whopping total of 804 exoplanets discovered in that year alone. So what you see in in the graphics is just a sort of piles of exoplanets mounting up as we discover more and more about the solar systems around other stars. It's a fascinating way of looking at this data, really. I've never seen anything like it. Can you just flick to another page and just, let's see... Space junk. Now, this is, this is you know, it's, it's often in the news. We're always talking about, you know, all the debris that we've left in space. Now, I'll go as far as to say that this infographic um, quite quietly makes a point and maybe does a little bit of shaming. It's a sort of fan-shaped diagram that shows um, there are different colours of dots, each of them representing a particular piece of... of actually, each of them representing... 10 payloads or 10 rocket bodies in, in debris. So payloads are in blue and the rocket bodies are, are, are in uh, sort of an orangey color. And you can see the end in the fan, the different sections of the fan are dedicated to different countries. So I look at this right away and I can see, wow, the US and the Russian space and the Soviet Russian space program had a lot of fantastic successes in terms of the space race, the first satellites to the Russians, the first man on the moon to the, to the Americans. But they left a whole lot of trash up there. <laughs> yep. Uh, and, and China the, the, is sort of the third on the list, and it's rapidly catching up. Um, you know, it's, it being a, a nation that is expanding to space, its satellite capacity has grown tremendously. Um, ESA is actually this kind of the good guys, is the European Space Agency. Um, it's been obviously it sent up fewer satellites, I suppose. But um, you know, India, Japan, France, uh, and then uh, a whole lot of other countries also have uh, their own. Uh, sort of uh, list of shameful objects that left <laughs> up in space. But is that just? Is that really just showing you that these these countries have sent more off, up there? It could be. Yeah, it could. It could just be that you know, it just shows you exactly that that they're the countries that have a been in space the longest, and you know have got their method of getting stuff into space down down to a fine art. Um, but but space junk is a real issue. Not all of it falls back to the Earth, and you know although it seems counterintuitive, we're always talking about pollution on Earth is actually a lot better if it does fall back to Earth rather than um, remain floating there because it actually poses a huge threat um, to astronauts, to the space station, and to every satellite that's actually bears. out there. And water bears, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I mean a water bear can survive in in outer space and can survive intense radiation, but I'm not sure it could survive getting flattened by a piece. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's each one of these um, pages has normally a small paragraph, a few sentences just explaining what's on the page. And for this one, it makes the point that these bits of space junk, they they travel at speeds of up to 28,000 kilometres an hour. So you can see how it would very easily knock a satellite or a whole bunch of satellites out. And they pose a real constant danger to the lives of every astronaut. 
on the ISS and and you know these hypervelocity impacts and they're a very real problem and as as recently as 2014 there was a hole punched into the ISS um, very close to its coolant tubes you know and, and they had to go out and fix it so if, if you were to see this kind of infographic published in a newspaper it would quite silently make a point you wouldn't have to spell it out and it has a much bigger impact than just putting down a number oh 6385 bits of junk left up there you know but you see this and you're like oh my i think santa should drop this book into the stockings of scientists who are engaged in public outreach scientists who are trying to write grant proposals to get funding as a way of showing them look this isn't a way of presenting your research findings the data you've, you've you've generated and uncovered in a way that's really communicates the findings you, you, you have to the public or to the grant panel or someone else that you want to impress. Cosmos, the infographic book of space. It looks like an amazing book, and if you accidentally buy another book called Cosmos by Carl Sagan, don't worry, that's also excellent. It has a way of visualising so many different things, but there are things in science which you couldn't visualise in this way, which takes us nicely into our final book, which is Why String Theory by Joseph Why string theory is Joseph Conlon's attempt to sort of answer some criticisms of string theory that have been made over the years. Before you can answer why string theory, you have to answer what string theory is. At at its basis is is the idea that the building blocks of matter, the things that make up the, the protons and neutrons and quarks, can be represented as different vibrational modes in infinitesimally tiny pieces of string. String theory has come in under a lot of criticism. Um, It's seen as being very esoteric, uh, and also um, particularly among the group of physicists for whom experimental confirmation really, really matters, uh, it's a bit the bane in their existence that that string theory makes no testable predictions. The thing is that serious string theorists, some group of them at least, of whom Conlon is one, are also really quite bothered by this. And so what Conlon does in his book is to set out why he and... Uh, thousands of others, choose to study string theory and choose to work on it, even though it has no, as yet, no experimental confirmation. Conlon makes a, makes a point, the implications of this theory actually impinge on a lot of different fields, and you don't actually necessarily need to believe that the world is made of strings in order to find string theory useful and interesting and valuable. In effect, it's a defence of string theory. Yes, exactly. It's a defence of string theory. And Tushni, do you want to explain why string theory needed to be defended? <laughs> <laughs> so so earlier this year, um, I, was, I was in the US, um, and I met up with um, Peter Woith. He wrote this book called Not Even Wrong, about 10 years ago and it kicked off this sort of period of high drama in the physics community called the String Wars. Last year a magazine article called him the Admiral of the String Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it was by um, sort of the standards of modern physics a very heated, very public debate. It got played out in newspapers and magazines and the main reason this happened was because Voigt and some others were sort of fed up with string theory's seemingly endless parade in in, in sort of popular whether it was books or film or, or, or sort of TV programmes, it seemed to be that everyone was talking about string theory and everyone seemed to hail it as the answer to everything, whereas the sort of cracks had already appeared. Um, Voigt makes the point that Conlon's book... It was exactly what he wanted as a response to his book. He wanted someone to come out and give reasonable, solid explanations or reasons why you should still be pursuing string theory. And, you know, he he really enjoyed the book too, despite his very staunch, um, still firmly held belief that string theory is not 
the answer. And did it change your views, the two of you? Well, I think, I, I, I'm sort of agnostic about string theory. I'm not a string theorist by background. I'm an experimentalist, and I spent the, the, the period of the string wars as an experimental condensed matter physicist bent over an optical bench trying to make my lasers work. It's not my area of physics. <laughs> but I can with this book, I can kind of see that string theory can be useful even if it's not true. Even if it's not the, the ultimate theory of everything that we're, we're sort of searching for, even if it's not the way of unifying quantum mechanics and gravity, it can still tell us interesting and true things about the universe. And it can still be helpful as a technique for um, in, in other areas of physics, including actually condensed matter physics. Um, there are certain aspects of the theory of superconductivity, particularly high temperature super superconductivity, that techniques from string theory might be actually useful in telling us things about these very messy, uh, very ordinary, everyday systems like superconductors. Mm. Ordinary by comparison with, with strings, I guess. Uh, I, have, I have a bias there. Um, <laughs> so, and, and the other thing I really liked about this book is, is just, is uh, Colin has a great sense of humor, and he just, the, the way he uses language is really fun. This is, this is someone who, who, who laughs at himself and laughs at other string, string theorists, and, but he does so often in a very poetic way. Uh, he also talks about his fellow physicists. Physicists working on understanding the fundamental laws of nature do not generally regard themselves as intellectually deficient. Excessive humility is not observed to be a common weakness within the subject. What I really enjoyed about Conlon's book was that previous string theory books have been defensive in the past couple of years or um, back in its when it was still sort of its heyday or all of the books are sort of very highbrow and, and talk about you know truth and beauty and these kind of ideas and and completely ignore any of the criticisms and what he's done is actually you know tackle the criticisms answer some of them in a very honest ma manner you know i mean i think there's a chapter in the book chapter seven is it oh yes um, chapter seven direct experimental evidence for string theory and it's one sentence there is no direct experimental evidence for string theory <laughs> he's not trying to squirrel his way out he's not trying to say oh but it in case we find the thing and the thing and the thing and maybe you know <laughs> he's very, he's brutally honest about it he's he's you know he's not trying to pull any of his punches like that's it yep you know and 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 i think that's what makes this a really good book what what's good about it also is that he he gives people who might not like string theory enjoy it um a reason to not be totally um demoralized by the fact that so much time and effort and money has been spent on it it's the you know we've done this we've dug into it what can we get out of it irrespective of whether it is true or not and he convinces you on that and i think that's something that i think even as, a, as an agnostic about st string theory and, and a, a bystander in the string wars i really appreciate about the book so there are four fantastic books here there are six more on the shortlist which is on the physics world website but we do need to decide a winner it's always hard to choose a book of the year, a Physics World's book of the year, because there are so many good books written in a given year. You've heard about four of them in this this podcast. There's, as you say, there's six more on the short list that I encourage you to check out. This year is particularly hard because we've been doing the book of the year for eight years, and this is the first time we've had a book of infographics on the short list. And it's quite difficult to sort of decide, you know, one of the criteria is that the book be well written. Well, well, well written means something different when you're writing captions to infographics than it does when you're writing a, you know, a 300 and 400 page biography. So we have a winner and we have a highly commended book. And our highly commended book is Cosmos, the infographic book of space by Stuart Lowe and Chris North. 
We thought this was a fantastic book. It's a beautiful book. It looks absolutely gorgeous and it conveys information in a really new and interesting way, something we hadn't really seen before. So if you like, that was the book that scored really high on our, our novelty, one of the criteria. The winner, though, is Why String Theory by Joseph Conlon. For all the reasons we've been talking about so far, this is the book that even people who don't like string theory should like and appreciate, and those who do like string theory will appreciate the fact that someone among their number has stood up and given a really learned and witty and humble defense of the subject that they have in many cases spent their whole careers on. I think both sides of the string wars can look at this book and read this book and agree that this is an intelligent and well-argued and thoughtful and humorous defense of a field of physics that, uh, for whatever its detractors say about it, has great promise as a means of understanding our universe better. Well, congratulations to all the winners, and in fact, everybody on the shortlist. Some fantastic books there. Uh, Santa's going to have a very heavy sleigh this year. And thank you very much indeed to Margaret and Tushner for joining me here in the Cosmic Shed. So we'll be back next month with another edition of the Physics World podcast, which will not be about books, it'll be about something else, because there's a whole world of physics out there. And you can see the full shortlist for the Physics World Book of the Year at physicsworld.com, where you can also read book reviews taken from Physics World, which is published every month. If you have any other comments about the books we've discussed on the podcast, please let us know on Twitter, at PhysicsWorld. And thank you for listening. Physics World.